What's going on, everybody? Welcome back for another week in First Peter. So if you turn there with me. So as I was listening to AJ's uh, sermon from last week, I was kind of blown away by the beautiful structure that Peter has in the beginning of this letter. Uh, in the first two verses, Peter addresses uh, who he's writing to. He says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. And so, he's, so he addresses who he's writing to, and he establishes his authority he was given from Christ. And then he lays a beautiful foundation uh, of our God and how he saves. So what, as I was listening uh, to AJ's message, I was like, it's really cool how before Peter even does anything, he firstly establishes his uh, apostolic um, authority, and then he goes into who he's writing to, and then he lays an awesome foundation of who God is, who the triune God is, and how he saves us, and how he has saved um, these elect exiles. So I thought it was really awesome how he does that. And then in our um, passage for today, verses 3 through 5, he breaks out into a doxology, or a, um, a praise and a worship of who God is uh, for those things, and for just being who he is. And so that's kind of where we're headed to the uh, doxology that he just breaks out into. So another thing that I want to kind of uh, discuss before I get into my three verses, verses 3 through 5, they don't really have much to do with suffering, but I kind of want to address who and what kind of um, audience Peter is writing to. So I don't want to go too crazy into suffering tonight because, again, that's not specifically what Peter is talking about here, but I think it's really valuable for us to see um, the audience and their suffering that we talk about. I think it's important uh, to establish why Peter is talking the way he talks throughout this letter. Establishing more specifically who Peter is talking to will help us understand what he says, why he says the things he does throughout the letter. We hear commonly that Peter is writing to Christians, uh, to suffering Christians, and that is very true. The first century Christians are being harshly treated, they are beaten and mocked, they are thrown in prison and even killed. These things are all very true. Peter mentions some of, uh, some of this specifically in his letter. But this type of suffering I've mentioned is, uh, this, this type of suffering that I've mentioned just now, the beatings, the imprisonments, the, the death, uh, it's definitely alive and happening around the world even today. And I want, what I want, my aim of this, of uh, establishing who the audience is, is to try to make it relevant for us. Because this letter is actually very relevant for us, uh, more so uh, a lot of times we lose touch with, okay, they're, they're dying, they're being put in prison, and we're in America, and, we're, and that's not happening to us. Though I want to uh, admit that it is definitely happening around the world. Um, but I fear that because of that type of extreme suffering in the first century church, uh, we may feel out of touch with what Peter is talking about. So I want to uh, talk specifically in the very beginning about uh, what actually is the suffering or the various trials that Peter is specifically mentioning in First Peter? And ju- we'll see how, just how relevant they are for us. So I want you to be uh, aware throughout this study of Peter's letter that he is talking to Christians just like us. Even though we may not be experiencing the, the extreme persecution here in America, he's still, he's still very relevant for us. Peter mentions many different types of suffering throughout this letter, and I want to highlight them for you to show you how, just how relevant they really are. 
He mentions specifically suffering by way of imprisonments, beatings. Uh, those are things that I've kind of mentioned already. But he also mentions unjust bosses and accusations of wrong. And we think, well, we don't really get accused of uh, being um, too, like, of being wrong in the way we approach life. But uh, as Caroline and I were talking about it, Caroline was like, we certainly do. We're accused of wrong when we fight against abortion and when we fight against homosexuality and many other things that the, uh, the law allows, but yet as Christians, we say no to. So we're, acu- we're accused of being wrong. You're wrong, you're a hater, you're this, you're that. So we're, it's relevant in that aspect as well. Peter also mentions slanders and insults, social ostracism, or being an outcast. That certainly happens. In high school, for sure, I know many of you, I'm sure, were invited to parties. And if you said, nah, no thanks, I don't do that kind of stuff, what are you called? You're called like a square or whatever the case may be. You're, or you're ostracized. You're kind of outcast, like, ah, you're kind of a weirdo, you know? So these are slanders, insults, and being an outcast. We're, they're often, uh, in Peter's letter, these are specifically mentioned, by the way, in Peter's letter. They're reviled for good behavior. These are just some of the specific things Peter mentions, and there are many more that the early Christians suffered from and that are very relevant for us. But I think Peter is aiming at something even more relevant for us today as Christians and to his audience. So beyond that, beyond the specific things that Peter mentions in here, he also mentions something that's even more relevant for us, and it was uh, that which makes us very similar to the first century Christians that Peter's addressing. Peter uses the word various trials. He uses this, I think he uses the word trials uh, a couple different times, but he uses it in uh, verses in verse 6. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. He used this word to address the, vari- uh, the variety of struggles we have as Christians. What he means by this word, trials, is temptation to sin. So that immediately becomes very, very relevant for us now. We are all tempted to sin, whether in the first century or now. This is incredibly relevant for us as Christians. Peter even mentions specifically temptation from Satan. But beyond that, the temptations of everyday life, which are meant to test your faith and ultimately strengthen your faith. This will be uh, hit on more so and more specifically so next week about um, how these trials and these temptations to sin ultimately strengthen and lift up your faith. But Peter has in mind an audience that is uh, elect of God and in the midst of great trials of their faith. This is where the word various comes in. These trials are any type of temptation to sin, meaning pornography, addiction, gluttony, anxiety, pride, gossip, uh, depression, and any other uh, type of temptation to sin that you struggle with. So you can fill in the blank here. He's covering it all. These are temptations to sin. Is the biggest form of trial or suffering that he's specifically mentioning. So I don't want us to feel like we're out of touch with what uh, the, the suffering of being in America. I don't want us to feel out of touch. These are very relevant things. This also means uh, just the simple struggle we all experience every day with longing and groaning to be glorified and rid of sin forever. Every Christian experiences this type of trial. This even applies to our daily struggle to wake up and be filled with joy and delight in God. Every morning you wake up with a trial of worshiping and delighting in God in the midst of apathy. Every morning as Christians we wake up and have to fight for our faith. We have to resist the devil and our apathy and we need to be filled with the Spirit of God. 
There will be times we are so in love with God and enjoying Him, but more often than not, it is not sunshine and roses. It's ugly and it's messy, filled with pain, struggle, and loss. But it is in these moments when we feel dead to God, when we feel dead to God and His amazing love, where our faith is really tested and strengthened. Paul Washer said, it is in these moments where we're feeling dead and uh, we have no joy, we, we wake up and it's hard to feel groggy to get in your Bible and read. It is in these moments when we obey that a greater faith is displayed. It's easy to worship God when we're feeling so in the Spirit. We, have, we just listen to a great song, but it's in the moments where we don't want to worship God and we don't feel the joy and we are obedient. That true, and uh, not true, but uh, a greater faith is displayed. When you aren't feeling on fire for God and yet you still obey, and still press on. These are the moments when your faith is strengthened, but more on that, again, will be next week. Uh, For now, we will look to the great and glorious hope Peter gives uh, Christians as we battle and fight for faith each and every day. So I'm going to, how I'm going to kind of go about this is I'm going to go, like, kind of phrase by phrase. We're going to read through the first three verses, and then we're going to, um, I'm going to pick out certain phrases throughout, and I'm going to emphasize those, and then I'll end with a brief uh, s- summary of what we've gone over. So, First Peter, I'm going to read from ver- uh, chapter 1. I'm going to read from verses 1 all the way to 5. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Here's our verses for tonight. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you'd fill me with your spirit as I do what is impossible with man, and that is uh, lift up your name and exalt you for who you are and the work that you've done in our salvation. I pray, Lord, that throughout this room uh, we would grow in in our assurance of salvation in the hope that we have in Christ. I pray, Lord, that you would look glorious. You would look so much better than this world. I pray, Lord, that the things of this world would grow strangely dim. I pray that we would worship you with an honest, pure, and upright heart. Lord, pierce our hearts today. Give us full assurance of our salvation. Help us to know you more and to love you more. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So the first phrase I want to look at is, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In this initial sentence, Peter so easily and effortlessly confirms the distinct roles of God the Father and God the Son. You heard a lot about this last week. Uh, In addition to what we have just learned from last week, the first two verses of this letter, it is just further testimony to the triune God which we serve and worship. I don't really need to go into huge detail 
about this because AJ just went over it pretty heavily last week. So if you missed last week, uh, you could listen to that on our podcast. But after this initial greeting of the letter, Paul breaks out into a doxology or a form of praise and worship towards God for who he is and what he has done for us. Peter can't help but rejoice in God for the great mercy he has shown us through Christ. You see, you see the, the, the breakout here. After he makes his, final, his, his address to the Christians, he says, according to the foreknowledge, he, just, it, it, he lists out how we are saved, and then he just breaks out into, blessed, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be God. You see, he just immediately breaks out into a doxology and a praise and a worship of God. I'd like to mention here briefly that God is worthy of our praise. This may seem obvious, but before we even establish why or for what reason Peter gives in this context for worshiping God, for blessing, being, for saying blessed be God, he says because in a little bit. But before we even get to that, we should humbly accept the fact that he simply is worthy. Regardless of what God does or is doing for us, he is worthy of our praise. That's simply who he is. That's what the word blessed is means and God is the most is the most blessed one this could easily be a standalone sentence it's not in our context because like I said Peter will go on and say because but it very well could be because he simply is worthy of all our affection and devotion we see this displayed in Romans 125 when Paul says all mankind exchanges the truth of God for a lie and worships and serves the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever So regardless of how humanity feels towards him, he is worthy of praise and adoration. But in our context, Peter calls us to praise God for a specific reason. This reason is found in verse 3. Because of his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again. This is an important emphasis made in the early goings of this letter. Because as I've mentioned, these Christians are struggling with trials and temptations and other forms of suffering. And Peter reassures them of the great news that we have a worthy God who has caused us to be born again because of his favor and great mercy. You can rejoice in your trials and be comforted because of the great love that God has shown you. This is a common theme throughout this letter, that in order to get through trials, in order to get through being tempted, in order to get through uh, being dull in the morning, we must look to the gracious promises of God through faith. Peter is telling these Christians and us that God has given you something so much better than the world and the flesh can give. Something that lasts forever and can bring ultimate and lasting joy. Peter is bringing, bringing incredibly good news to the afflicted and suffering Christians. Now I want to move to the next little portion. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, and here it is, according to his great mercy. Something I find interesting in this sentence uh, is the word choice for mercy. Wouldn't it, have been, wouldn't it have made much more sense if Peter used the word grace? Think about it. According to his great grace, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. So I'm thinking, why didn't he use grace? Maybe you can do more study and come up with a better reason. But I'd like to propose one idea. First, I should try to explain the difference between mercy and grace. Uh, They're very similar words, but they do differ slightly. Grace is merited favor. Grace is being 
given something that you do not deserve. Mercy is withholding something that you do deserve. So, both are heavily involved in how God saves us. But there is a slight difference. Grace has, grace has to do with guilt, and mercy has to do with misery. So looking back at our text, we wonder, why does Paul use the word mercy? I think it is because of the context to which uh, Peter is writing to, the audience. As I've discussed already, these Christians are suffering. Therefore, they need to be relieved of their suffering. Or to put it more plainly, they need mercy for the misery they are experiencing from suffering and the daily pressures of this life. Now, obviously, the mercy God has given them from his wrath and eternal death is certainly in view here as well. But I can't help but think this word was divinely chosen to minister relief in their trouble. In addition to that is the simple fact that before any of God's graces can be given, we must experience the mercy of God. God must have pity on us in our miserable state before we can receive even one good thing from him. So that's just some food for thought. I mean, you can do more study on that if you want, but I just thought it was interesting. Um, so what, so uh, what do we, what, but what we do know is mankind brings and contributes sin in this world. And we see that all good things come from God's divine mercy. Man brings forth sin and misery in the world, and God lavishes us with mercy and grace. So as we continue to look deeper into the verse, into verse 3, we see a special emphasis on God the Father. We look at it. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. We see an emphasis on God the Father, the first person in the Trinity. Uh, last week, uh, the special emphasis of God the Father and his divine awakening. Last week we saw it is the foreknowledge of God, or the forelove, as A.J. As, uh, AJ ex, uh, explained, of God that we are saved. This week we see that God the Father is the cause of our new birth. This only happens because of Christ. But we see the initiator of our salvation is God the Father's electing grace to choose us before the foundation of the world by causing us to be born again. The Father is the one who sends his Son. The Father is the one who pours out his Spirit on us to sustain us. James says in chapter 1, Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. We see plainly the divine love of the Father on his children. It was God, think about this. This is amazing. It was God's will to bring about your salvation. He has caused this to happen. We should marvel and be in awe at this stunning fact. You do not just stumble into faith by some random chance that someone preaches the gospel to you. This was God's will and his plan for you, for those who are in Christ. This was his effectual plan for your life. Praise God. Furthermore, we see here in this verse, which is implicitly mentioned, the fact that there is a need for rebirth. Peter says that, uh, Peter says he has caused us to be born again. Those who were uh, with us for our first John study should be very familiar, uh, should be very familiar with this term, born again. John mentioned it over and over and over again. There is a very real reality that mankind is fallen and rebellious, haters of God, and they need to be restored and reconciled to God. They must be born anew and made alive to the glorious and love, uh, the glories and loveliness of who God is. This only happens by the powerful Spirit's awakening 
through the preaching of the word of God. We are dead in our sin, storing up wrath for ourselves, headed for eternal destruction, and need to be born again. And this is what Peter says we have been saved from by the mercy of God through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Without God, we have no hope, no mercy, no inheritance, and we are headed for eternal ruin because of our sin. Thanks be to God that he has caused us to be born again, and not merely born again, but born again to a living hope. And this is the phrase we turn to next, living hope. So it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. So what does Peter mean by living hope? Maybe living here, maybe living here and now uh, on this earth, maybe that's what he means by living, as in you have been born again to a living hope on this earth as you struggle against sin and death. You have, a, you have a hope of a greater life, or maybe a living hope that is simply uh, looking forward to heaven and looking forward, uh, it is a life beyond the grave and a life that is eternally lived. I think both of these apply here, and I think Peter's main point is you have been born again, and now your hope is alive. You actually have a hope. Those who are not believers do not have a hope. You do not grumble and moan as the world does, not knowing Uh, what your purpose in life is. You have been made alive to the glory and wonder and loving kindness of God. You've been made alive in your faith to treasure and enjoy Christ uh, and God forever and ever. To grow in holiness and to become more and more like Christ. You now are being sanctified and will finally be glorified and spend eternity in everlasting joy praising the one who set you free. This is the living hope that you have been given. Uh, This brings up an, uh, an interesting point in I've been kind of wrestling with this in Romans 5. Um, if you want to turn there really quick, for those of you who have a Bible. Um, I kind of stumbled across this, and I was unsure of what Paul was talking about. Uh, Romans 5, we'll start in, uh, really it's 1 through, um, really 1 through 11, but we're going to park it in 6 through 11. So this is kind of something that I was kind of like, I kind of caught and was like, wait, what? what's happening here? So starting in verse 6 in Romans 5, it says, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more now, or much more, shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by his death, by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. So the the part where I was like, wait, what's happening here is, he says uh, in verse 8, but God shows his love for us in that while we are still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. I was like, what can be more than being justified by his blood? I was like, what does he mean by much more? And I think uh, equally, in, or he says, Peter says a similar thing, but this means uh, in, in his living hope, this means that we are not uh, merely born again, but born again to something. In, in Romans, he says, 
we have now been justified by his blood. And that says, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. So I think what he's saying here is we have been justified. We have, and in verse 1 of chapter 5, uh, we have peace with God. And not only do we have peace with God, but now we have the assurance of our salvation that God will bring it to completion. And we will be glorified. There's great assurance in this uh, passage in, in Romans 5, 1 through 11, and in our text today. This means we are not merely born again, but born again to something. There is a tremendous assurance here in Romans 5 and also in our text. God does not simply just save us and then leave us to fend for ourselves against the world, the flesh, and the devil. He gives us grace and helps us along the way, aiding us in every step we take because of the grace we have through Jesus' perfect life. God not only saves us, but sees us through until the end. We, ha- we can have confidence that he will bring us home into our eternal dwelling place of everlasting joy. If you are a child of God because of Jesus' atoning work on the cross, you have peace with God. But more than that, you are being renewed by the Spirit and will be brought safely into his kingdom where there is an, where there is an inheritance kept for you. Isn't this great news for a suffering and for Christians who are experiencing trials and temptation to sin? So now we'll go back in, in 1 Peter and we'll move to the next phrase. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. The only reason you stand as a believer today, justified and reconciled to God, is because Jesus rose from the grave. No rise, no new birth. If Jesus had not rose from the grave, then he was only a good man who lived honorably and died a horrible death. Which means you are still in your sins and needing a gracious sacrifice. But thanks be to God that he indeed was the divine son of God and rose triumphantly from the grave and secured our salvation and completed the work the Father sent him to accomplish. It is an actual fact in history that Jesus rose from the dead by eyewitness accounts, which we have in this holy book. It's not some ethereal, far-off thing. We, we, oftentimes we don't really think about that. It's a fact. It's proven. There's eyewitnesses that account to it. Peter specifically mentions here that it is through the resurrection of Jesus, Jesus that all blessings are attributed to us from the Father. We are saved because of his resurrection and are kept because of his resurrection. Our only boast is the cross. All other hope is lost. We owe all we have to the amazing love displayed at Calvary. The worst and most glorious day in all of history where Jesus took on the full wrath of God for our sins and resisted sin to the point of shedding blood, died a gruesome death, and was finally raised. This new birth and work of Jesus is is displayed in our baptism. Those who have faith in Jesus have died with Christ and are now raised to new life, just as Jesus was raised to new life. We have nothing and are nothing apart from Jesus Christ, our Savior. And Peter does not want us to forget that in the midst of our trials. Next phrase we want to look at is, To an inheritance that is imperishable. As we continue to move along through these verses, we see again very clearly that we are not just born again, but born again to something. To an inheritance that is imperishable. Now let's read the verse. Verse 4 to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. This means that we are heirs with Christ as sons of God. In the Old Testament, they received 
more of a, a material blessing from God to display to display the inheritance we receive um, now. It's kind of a symbol and a, a, a foreshadow of what is to come. In the Old Testament, God's people were blessed with an inheritance of land and children and livestock. You were considered blessed if you had these things. In the New Testament, we see as a result of the new and, new and better covenant, we have received internal blessings, more of an internal blessing and a heavenly blessing. We have received the Holy Spirit as the guarantee of our inheritance and will receive the ultimate treasure of, our, of dwelling with God forever. The people in the Old Testament looked forward to this moment when Christ would come and establish a new and better covenant. And there, there will be more on this in weeks to come, uh, in particularly in verses 10 through, 10 through 12. Now this inheritance that we have received through the resurrection of Jesus is greater than anything you could ever imagine or hope for. This good and perfect inheritance lasts forever and ever and will supply us with joy never-ending. Um, it's eternal, eternal joy. Uh, there was a podcast, I, I won't mention whose podcast, but it was a conversation between two guys. Uh, neither one of them were believers. Um, and the one quotes, and they're talking about uh, heaven and the Christian uh, view of afterlife. And they're saying, and they say, these, again, these guys are not Christians, and they say, there's a, uh, they're kind of saying they can't imagine that anything would last forever. The one guy says, there is, a, there is beauty in things being temporary. No one wants to go to a movie that lasts forever. You're at a party, uh, and the other guy says, yeah, the other guy agrees and says, you're at a party, and it's like you're at a party, and death taps on your shoulder and tells you it's time to go, and the party goes on without you. That's, without, that's not eternity. And then he says, but say you're at a party, and someone taps you on the shoulder and tells you you can never leave. They say that's even worse. So they're comparing eternal life to something you really love on this earth, and it lasts forever. And in that sense, these men would be correct in, in saying and uh, referencing earthly things that last forever would eventually, you'd get bored, you'd get tired of it. There's a joy in, in uh, things that end. You, know, it's, it, you enjoy this life and then it ends, and that's what makes you really enjoy this life because you know it's going to end. But what they don't understand is the joy of heaven is nothing like this broken world. And the inheritance we receive from God is nothing like anything we have on this earth. It is so much better and brings eternal joy and lasting joy. The things of this earth are meant to point us to a better possession and enjoyment of God. They were never intended to satisfy our longings like God does. So this is where they fall short. Peter uses three specific words to explain this inheritance we will receive. And they are all foreign ideas to us um, and they will be glorious. He, cho- he, chose, he chooses these uh, words specifically because they portray, they each portray something unique to our situation on this earth. He says that it, our, our inheritance will be imperishable, which means it, uh, it is, not, is not able to be destroyed. Our inheritance and life after the grave will go on forever, never ending, in never ending joy. He uses the word undefiled, which means not polluted. We can't even imagine a world that isn't marred by sin and shame. But our inheritance is completely and totally pure and rid of all the trials and hurt that is a result of sin. Lastly, Peter uses the word unfading, which means it is not subject to decay. This world and its pleasures are fleeting. Our bodies are growing old and wrinkly. We 
experience the decay of life uh, every day as, uh, as loss happens around, all around the world and as we grow older and older. And yet our inheritance will never decay and will remain in prime condition forever and ever. Uh, the next uh, phrase I want to look at is, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded. So let's read uh, three, through, uh, 3 through 4. Just kind of get the whole thing again. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. So let's look at kept in heaven for you and a a little bit in the next verse, who by God's power are being guarded. This possession that the children of God have is kept in heaven for them. It's not going anywhere. God has secured it and it will be there waiting for you when you finally enter into glory. No one can take it away from you for it is kept and guarded by God. This word guarded has two active meanings. One being a a protection against outside attacks and the other being kept uh, from like inner uh, wanderings. We're not going to wander away from our faith or wander outside of our our grasp of our inheritance. Not only can uh, no one snatch you out of the Father's hand, but he will never let you wander into unbelief. It is helpful to think about this question. uh, Why, ask yourself this, why are you going to wake up a believer tomorrow morning? How do you know you're going to be a Christian when you wake up? Born again believers wake up each and every morning and are kept and guarded by God's power. You remain a believer because of God's great mercy and grace. You have been bought, genuine believers, you have been bought and you will be kept by God's power through faith. Can you see why this is, this is what Peter starts his letter with to uh, Christians experiencing trials. God causes your new life and also keeps your new life. Your entire Christian life is all by grace. By grace you are saved and by grace and by God's grace are you kept until glorification. What confidence and assurance you can have that your salvation does not rely on your efforts. Again, it's back, like back to Romans 5. When we're saved, we're justified much more now shall we be saved. This is what Paul uh, makes so obvious when he writes to the Galatian church. He says, Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Of course not. You have begun by the Spirit and are now being perfected by the, fle- by the Spirit. You have now begun by the Spirit and are now being perfected by the Spirit. Jonathan Edwards famously once said, and it deserves some meditation, I may have mentioned it in our First John series, but he says, grace is glory begun, and glory is grace perfected. I'm going to read it again. Grace is glory begun, and glory is grace perfected. So stand in your confident assurance and press on, knowing it can never be lost, because it is guarded by God's power. Every day we wake up empty and susceptible to attacks of uh, apathy and sin. We need to be filled. We need to be guarded. We need to be kept. And we certainly are. Those who are children of God certainly are. God richly provides us with faith to press on 
because Christ's work on the cross and because of his power to keep us. The next phrase I'm going to look at is uh, through faith. Who by God's power are being uh, guarded through faith. We never graduate from faith. We need childlike faith, uh, a genuine trust in God's promises. Faith is entirely the means by which our grace is supplied. Our faith is a gracious gift from God, Ephesians 2.8 says. Matthew Henry says it beautifully. He says, Faith is a sovereign preservative of the soul through a state of grace unto a state of glory. I'll read that again. Faith is a sovereign preservative of the soul through a state of grace unto a state of glory. This is huge. We must understand that it is only through faith in Jesus Christ that we receive eternal life and all the promises of God. Any attempts to achieve this living hope is in vain. You must receive it by grace through faith alone. Think about it in your everyday life. When you're tempted to sin, you either give in and believe a lie, or you put your faith in God according to his word, that his ways are better than your ways. What he has offered you will, uh, what he's offered you will bring greater joy and satisfaction. When you say no to sin, you are saying, I am putting my trust in the Lord, and I will follow the path that he has laid out for me in his word. I know that this momentary pleasure will not bring me ultimate satisfaction like God will. And you say no to the flesh and the world and the devil, and live for righteousness and a better possession. This is how Peter is exhorting Christians to live in the midst of their trials, in the midst of their uh, suffering, temptation to sin, and all of the above. And now I want to move into, for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So I'm going to read it all. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. You can hear Peter's encouragement here uh, and his exhortation to press on. Your inheritance is ready for you. Ultimate joy is ready for you, for the believer. Press on, Christian. Press on. The fight is almost over. This life is but a mist and a vapor. Your trials and suffering are light and momentary compared to the eternal joy that is offered to you. You have been called to this glory. Press on. Stand firm. In the strength that God supplies, you must kill sin. Romans 8.13 says that if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. This is written to Christians. He says that if you live according to the flesh, you will die. Well, supposedly Christians. If you live according to the flesh, you die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. And again, the assurance of faith is that God will keep you. If you are born again, you will be kept until the end. Your faith has been given to you by God through Christ to kill sin and persevere. Do not waver in unbelief. Put your trust in Jesus Christ alone to save you and keep you from falling, for he will surely do it. It is ready for you. 
The time is coming upon you where you will no longer struggle against sin, but be freed for all eternity. Press on. Fight the good fight. Refuge, I pray that we would get this. Your eternal joy is ready for you, and it is secured for you. Press on. So so as I draw to a close, close, um, we have talked in great detail tonight of the benefit of our faith and the assurance we can have. I'd like to emphasize three things for us, three things that you can take home. If you have missed anything throughout this uh, exhortation, I'd ask that you get these three, three, three things from tonight's verses. If you've, missed any, if you've missed anything, get these three things. Number one, God's power has saved you, and God's power will keep you in the faith until the end. Before the foundation of the world, God looked on your miserable state and condition and set you apart to be made holy and reconciled to him those who are born again he loved you from the before the foundation of the world and has prepared for you the greatest treasure ever imaginable saving you from the eternal torment and bringing you into everlasting joy that is beyond our capability of understanding he has saved you and will keep you number two It is through the atoning work of Jesus Christ, our Lord, that we have received anything but wrath and fury for eternity. Never-ending suffering and torment, far beyond any form of suffering imaginable, with no escape, was our future. But because he willingly died and bore the full penalty of all our sin, we can now experience this life to come and can live every day in resurrection power by the Spirit dwelling inside us. We must always look to Christ and look to the cross for our justification and our redemption and ultimately our glorification. And number three, with God guaranteeing your faith through the death and resurrection of Jesus, you will persevere through the trials of the Christian life. It will be hard and it will, be, and it will hurt. But know this, brothers and sisters, God has finished this work, and he will keep you. Take heart, believer. Your God is powerful, and he will accomplish what he has set out to do in you. You must therefore trust him and resist sin. Press on. Trust in Christ. Be prepared for the greatest treasure ever imaginable for those who persevere until the end. Let's pray. God, my words don't do it justice of the great assurance of salvation that the believer has in you. The strong conviction that he will persevere and he will overcome sin. He will kill sin. John Owen says, be killing sin or it will be killing you. And because of our, uh, your great mercy and our great inheritance, we can persevere because we know we will persevere by your strength. I pray, Lord, that this would land uh, on us heavily. I pray that we would experience the fruit of a uh, sweet assurance of salvation. I pray, Lord, that we would wake up every morning and want to die to self and live for Christ. I pray, God, that you would help us with these truths. I pray that you would guide conversation in small group. I pray that it would be fruitful. In your name I pray. Amen.